On June 29, 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower signed the Federal Highway Act. It would significantly shape American life for generations to come. I mean, just, just imagine trying to conceive of America today without highways. It's hard to think about what that would be like. But interestingly, 16 years prior to the Federal Highway Act, Pennsylvania had actually completed construction on their famous turnpike. It was, in a, in a way, a forerunner to the highway system. Pennsylvanians were innovative and proud of it. But one thing we know is that guinea pigs often, while being innovative, make a lot of mistakes that get corrected along the way in later renditions of whatever it is they're trying to figure out. And exhibit A for Pennsylvania is these on-ramps to the highway were dangerously short. This is a picture of one you can see there. Some of them were only 30 yards long, and they frequently have a stop sign at the end of them. Now, I lived in Pennsylvania for a while, and the stop signs are still there. It's absolutely baffling to me how they thought this was a good idea or continue to think it's a good idea. Right? These things are absolutely hazardous because you're coming to a stop, and these people are cruising at 70 miles an hour there, and you're trying to get up and going right away, and it's like, man, this is, this is bad news. So when I lived in Pennsylvania, I would actually go like 10, 15 minutes out of the way to get onto a highway where the on-ramp didn't have the stop sign. Right? They, don't, they don't all have that if you're driving out there, it's, but many of them do. And you're just thinking, like, this is fraudulent. Like, you're promising me this road gets me onto the highway, and there's no way this thing gets me safely onto the highway. This feels like, I mean, maybe not a death trap, but it's definitely scary business. Now, contrast that, one of the original ones, with what we have in Brownsburg at the Ronald Reagan I-74 intersection, where the new hospital is, right? And when you're getting onto 74, going, I guess, westbound, that is, towards Brownsburg and Pittsburgh from there, that thing's like a quarter of a mile long. If you're going 75, and you're not even halfway done with the thing yet. It's so easy to merge on, right? And so what you have is you have two on-ramps making the same promise. They say, we're going to get you safely onto the highway, except one of them actually fulfills its promise, and the other has basically insufficient resources to get the job done. It's like, yeah, that's not going to work, right? This morning's passage is a little bit like that. The highway we're trying to get onto, it's not I-74 or I-80 going across Pennsylvania or whatever. The highway we're trying to get to is humility before God and reconciliation with your fellow man. And there's all sorts of on-ramps, pathways to get to those two destinations. Humility before God, reconciliation before fellow man. But there's only one way to actually get there safely. And that's what this passage is going to show us. So if you were to summarize the whole thing, our, our big idea is this. Grace is the only on-ramp to humility before God and reconciliation with fellow man. If you don't understand grace, and you not only understand it, but receive it, you won't be able to be humble before God or reconciled with fellow man. So what, what I want to do this morning is I want to break down the main idea into two points and talk about those and move fairly quickly in the explanation and then get really practical on the reconciliation side towards the end. Because that's really the bulk of Genesis 33 is how Jacob and Esau are reconciling. So do a little foundational work and then get super practical towards the end on how that happens. All right, so, so first kind of foundational point here, grace is the only on-ramp to humility before God. 
Grace is the only on-ramp to humility before God. And if you look back at Genesis 33, I hope you've still got your copy of the scriptures open. Look back. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Here's what it says. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So if you're new to the story, you're not familiar with who these Jacob and Esau guys are, let me give you just a quick character introduction. Right? Esau is this man's man, an ultimate tough guy with no sense of God. He's full of swagger, he's full of self-importance, and he shows up with 400 dudes who are sort of made in his image. Like, this is a scary situation, these 400 bad boys showing up with Esau, the leader of the gang. And Jacob, Jacob's a totally different kind of guy. Jacob's the guy you see on Sunday morning at church, and he smiles at you. But he's also known for swindling you during the week. In fact, he's got a 25-year rap sheet of deceiving and stealing from first his dad, and then his brother, and then his uncle. And so you see him and he smiles, but you never really know how to take it. This is Jacob. And this is the first sibling meetup they've had in 20 years. So as you start to imagine these two guys, and they first get together for the first time in two decades, there's a totally unexpected interaction. First off, it's unexpected they would get together at all. And secondly, the style of the interaction is really surprising. We would expect to find hatred among them, but somehow we find a hug. We think we're going to see them fighting, but instead we find forgiveness. You, you see them coming together and you think you're going to see WrestleMania, but you find reconciliation. Like it, it's just totally surprising what happens here. And perhaps the most shocking thing of all of it is it's tough guy Esau leading the way. Look back at verse 4. There are, there's five key verbs in verse 4 that will show you Esau leading the way, and I'll highlight them as we go. Here's what it says. But Esau ran to meet him. That's the first one. And he embraced him. Second one. And he fell on his neck. Third. And he kissed him. Fourth. And they wept. Five verbs. Esau runs to meet him, embraces him, falls on his neck, kisses him, and they weep together. Not what we thought Esau would do. Is Esau righteous here? Is he a man of faith? I, I don't think so. We see Esau as a guy growing in maturity through life. Certainly we see people grow in maturity today who aren't Christians, who don't have faith in God, and maybe over time they become a little more mellow. Maybe that's what's happening with Esau. The reason I don't think Esau has faith in God, I don't think he's a, a Christian here, is because throughout the chapter, we see Jacob regularly saying the blessing came from God. Esau never references the blessing ever coming from God. So it seems to be Jacob saying, like, yeah, well, the Lord has blessed me in this way, and Esau is just saying, oh, I have plenty of stuff. But it seems, it seems to be a difference there. And you say, Justin, is Esau really leading the way? I know Jacob bowed down a few times before. Maybe Jacob was leading the way. And certainly Jacob shows humility in bowing down at the outset. Right? There's no doubt about that. But that five-fold 
verse or verb structure of Esau, Esau shows he's really the one leading the way to reconciliation. Like Jacob might have been growing in humility, but Esau is the one who really says, I'm going to work to reconcile here. And so the point of it is this. We see in Esau, God's using this unrighteous outsider, Esau, not the promised child, to show grace, undeserved grace, to the insider, Jacob, the guy who doesn't deserve it at all. And it's a larger biblical theme that's already been developing, right? You go back earlier in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, they go to Egypt, and they lie to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh, the unrighteous outsider, shows undeserved grace to these insiders who are not behaving very well. And then Isaac and Rebekah, they're on their way, and they meet a guy named Abimelech, also a king, and they lie to him. And the unrighteous outsider, again, shows undeserved grace to Isaac and to Rebekah. So the original reader is seeing this theme, the Israelites, and here's what they're going to see. We need to look out for pride in our lives, to think that we deserve the blessings that we have. I've worked hard. I've been a moral person. I go to church. I do the right things. He's saying, no, 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 look out. Even the chosen people are regularly receiving undeserved grace. This is how we're supposed to identify in the story. You, you say it a little bit differently. It's to say this. We don't believe in Jesus because we're good people. We believe in Jesus precisely because we know we're not good people. That's the difference. And so what it means practically is that you need to be a watchdog for pride in your own life. Think of yourself as a, as a watchdog for pride. I was out running the other day. I went around a cul-de-sac, and as I, as I got on this side of the cul-de-sac, on the other side, there was a watchdog. And I started to come around the corner, and that sucker started running at me. And I got nervous. Now, fortunately, there was an electric fence, but he got right up to the edge, and I'm, I'm kind of weak in the knee over there. Like, if this guy comes after me, I'm tired, and he's going to get me. But he saw me coming from a long way away, and he was ready to pounce. Are you a watchdog for pride in your own life in that way? Or do you kind of sit back, and if it comes up to the front door and knocks on the door, then maybe you'll respond to it and try to tell it to go away. You hope there's not a salesman who comes up with pride. But are you actively, like a watchdog, pursuing pride and chasing it off in your own life? The fact of the matter is the Bible is filled with God explicitly speaking to this, with direct warnings, and God doesn't pull any punches here. Deuteronomy 9 is one example we could cite, and we'll put it on the screen. Listen to how direct God is in his warnings to his people. Listen to this. He says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore, don't miss this, that the Lord your God is not giving you the good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. I feel very affirmed by that, thank you. He goes on, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. I told you he wasn't pulling any punches. That's about as direct as it gets, isn't it? It's not because you're good. It's because I'm going to show grace. I'm going to judge the wickedness. 
And from the very first day up until this day, you've continued to be rebellious, stiff-necked, and full of pride. Be a watchdog against pride in your own life. It's as if God is saying, I chose you in grace, I saved you by grace, and I'm sticking with you because of my grace. Don't miss it. Grace is the on-ramp to humility before God. It's the only on-ramp that can actually get you there. Because what's going to happen is you're either going to find your identity in God's goodness to you, his grace to you, or, here's the other option, you find it in some kind of goodness you have, either towards God or towards other men or women. So you'll find an identity in saying, well, I'm a committed church member. My identity is I'm a really good servant. My identity is I'm a, a big giver or I'm a bold evangelist. And if you embrace any of those identities, what's going to happen is you're going to start to look down on other people who don't do that like they should. Boy, if we had more people who would serve around here, we wouldn't be so burnt out. Boy, if we had more people who gave like me, we'd be able to send more missionaries. Boy, if we had more people evangelizing, this nation wouldn't be in the, st in the state that it's in. And you look down on the other people not doing that. Of course, it doesn't only happen in a churchy kind of way either, right? Because you, you could flip this around and say, my identity is this. I'm the one who truly cares for the oppressed. I'm the one who really hates racism. I'm the one who actually cares about women's rights. And when that becomes your core identity, then you look down on others who don't care about those causes like you do. Well, the problem is it's them. And both camps miss the fact that grace is the only on-ramp to humility before God. And this is precisely where we find Jacob. He's humbled before God by undeserved grace that Esau shows to him. And when you come to grips with grace being undeserved, then it totally changes how you see other people. Because you recognize, I didn't deserve this grace, and neither did they. So instead of being so quick to be upset at others, I recognize Man, the Lord could have been that upset with me, and yet he chose to show me grace. And so therefore, I can now go and show grace to others. That brings us to our second point. Grace is the only on-ramp to reconciliation with fellow man. Yes, it's the only way to be humble before God, but it's also the only way to be reconciled with fellow man. That is to say this, that only in humility before God, in receiving grace, is reconciliation with fellow man even an option? Because there's lots of people in our world that want deep relationships, they want reconciliation, but they're trying to get to that destination with the wrong on-ramp, the one with the stop sign right there. It's like, it's not going to work. It's not going to get you there. Think of it this way. The only way to become a medical doctor and to save lives is through hard work in studying. Like, if you skip that step, there's no way to get that job in the ER. Like, it just, it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. You say, Justin, I want to save lives. I want to be part of helping people out with their diseases. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through all the TV shows and get as prepared as I can. I'm going to watch all eight seasons of Dr. House. I'm going to watch all 15 seasons of ER. I'm even going to go back, and I'm going to learn all the ancient techniques. I'm going to watch all six seasons of Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. I will be ready. And it says, look, no, it doesn't matter how good your desire is. 
you're on the wrong on-ramp to that destination. It's the same thing with being reconciled with your fellow man. It's not enough to desire to reconciliation. You have to be reconciled with God. You have to receive grace. And that allows us to be reconciled with fellow man. So this right here, this is fairly specific and personal, but it really matters that we recognize the root cause of our broken relationships is our sin against God, first vertical, that then fractures our relationships with others. That's why it's only in receiving reconciliation, grace from God, that it then can flow horizontally to other brothers and sisters. And so what what Ephesians does, the book of Ephesians, is it talks about how Jesus reconciled sinful humans to God and then commissions us out to be taking reconciliation as we go. I just want to take a minute and show you kind of a flow of thought through the New Testament. So I know I'm stepping away from Genesis 33 for just a second here. Let me show you this New Testament flow of thought that makes this really abundantly clear. We're going to start in Ephesians 2. Here's what it says. His purpose, this being Jesus, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus went to the cross, reconciled us to God, put to death this hostility that our sin had created. Okay? Now, I flip over to 2 Corinthians, and we pick it up again. Here's this flow of thought through the New Testament. Hear, hear how Paul picks it up again. He says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Boom, reconciled to God. Now here's your ministry. Go be reconciled to fellow man. Now, of course, that starts with taking the message of reconciliation to God. How did Jesus pay for your sin? Allow you to have a relationship with God? Go tell other people about that. That's your ministry of reconciliation. But it's not only evangelistically. Like 2 Corinthians 5, if you go back and reread that, that's very much an evangelistic context. Go tell people who are not reconciled to God, that's the ministry I'm giving you. But we continue to read the flow of thought in the New Testament, and we see more being sort of unpacked and developed. How does it apply to other believers? We go over to Colossians 3. It says, we're bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Do you see it? It starts with Christ. He's the minister of reconciliation, gives this ministry to us, and then says, as you've been forgiven, you must also forgive. So if I just pause here for a moment, when you hear me say something like this, pretty frequently, Christian growth means going deeper in the gospel. The gospel is not the diving board into Christianity. It's not just how I get saved. The gospel is the entire pool, and to go deeper as a Christian is to go deeper in the gospel. Colossians 3.13 is precisely the kind of verse I have in mind. Understand how you were forgiven, boom, that's how you go forgive. Jesus would say in John 13, 14, 15, as I have loved you, so you go love. Understand what I did for you, and that's how you live. That's the first thing, catch that. But secondly, note this, reconciliation with fellow man is not optional. What's that last phrase there? So you also must forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Very simple, very straightforward. Not easy to do, 
but easy to see the clear connection. In fact, it's not only optional, it's highly urgent. I want to continue walking through the New Testament, just a bit here, to one more verse. Matthew chapter 5, listen to the urgency that Jesus places on reconciliation. He says this, So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. But that's not something you hear from a pastor very often, is it? Hey, don't worry about the offering. Leave that aside. There's something else more important right now. That's what Jesus is saying. Reconciliation is required and it's urgent. So we recognize that a vertical reconciliation with God leads to a horizontal reconciliation with our fellow man. And both come only by grace. This means then that God isn't using the moral all-stars but rather he's choosing to use the religious hypocrites and the moral failures. Because it's not about your goodness, what you bring to the table. That's not the criterion. The criterion is, will I confess my need for grace and cling to him instead of clinging to myself? It's at that point that I become entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And there's all kinds of people in our lives that we can rule out and say, nope, God's not using that person or that person. And you might look outward and see others that you think God isn't going to use, or you might look inward and see how God's not going to use you. And Satan wants to play both of those games with you. Understand that. That's his lie, to tell you God can't use that person or yourself because of the flaws in their life. What grace does is say, no, 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 no. It wasn't about me being perfect. It wasn't about my goodness. It was that God chose to show his love. Remember Deuteronomy 9. It's not because of your goodness that the Lord is showing grace to you, but because he's choosing to show grace. For some of us, this is just a, a crazy, surprising kind of message. Because the church people that you've known, they seem so flawed, and you just wonder, how could God ever use somebody like them Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way, I think helpfully so. Here's what he says. If all this surprises you, it may mean that you've bought into a completely mistaken idea. Namely, that Christianity is about those who live moral and good lives and consequently are taken to heaven. Rather, one of the main themes of the biblical story and stories is that even some of the ablest human beings who've ever lived such as Abraham and David, could not rise above the brutality of their own cultures nor the self-centeredness of their own hearts. But by clinging to the wondrous promise that God's grace is given to moral failures, they triumphed. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So when you see that you were reconciled first to God, it opens the door for you to be reconciled to your fellow man. And so I wonder if you're here this morning, you're listening to me, like, Justin, I, I sort of see the, the, the flow of thought, the logic, it makes sense, but can you explain how? How is this supposed to work? Because if you've never seen reconciliation modeled, it's hard to move towards it like Jacob and Esau did. What does it look like for me to apologize if I've never seen that take place? What does it mean for me to proverbially kiss and make up? And if you look out in our culture, you see all sorts of examples of how not to do this. 
And so it's not like it's really helping us. I'm reminded of the one episode in The Office where Dwight does something really wrong and gets in trouble, and his discipline for Michael is he has to uh, bring this public apology. And so, so Michael says to, to Dwight, says, Dwight, have you prepared your statement of regret? And Dwight says, yes, I have. And, and Michael says, let's hear it. And so Dwight reaches into his uh, coat pocket and pulls out this envelope and takes the letter out of the envelope and gets it all out. And he says, <clears throat> I state my regret. <laughs> and he stuffs it back in there. And everybody's looking around like, you can't be serious, right? Like, you think this is supposed to do anything to help make the situation better? And there's all kinds of examples of non-apology apologies that we can think of. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of some of those. And so if we're going to be reconciled to each other, we've got to be thinking carefully about what does this actually look like? How do we actually do this? So let me make one more quick comment before we get into some practicalities here. Know this. In the process of seeking reconciliation, you've got to understand this is going to take a while. It's a process and it's a journey. Sometimes reconciliation happens quickly, but you need to be prepared for a longer-term path to get there. Say a little differently, deep wounds usually need stitches and antibiotics, not just Band-Aids. And and a, a word here, if you are seeking reconciliation and you've been in an abusive relationship, can I just please ask you to go and seek help from a pastor or from a trained counselor, because reconciliation is always the goal, but in more extreme situations, the path requires more nuance. So please ask someone who's, who's trained to help guide in these conversations how that can happen. Uh, don't rush in and put yourself in a, a compromising spot that is unwise. All right. Th- that being said, let me get to a couple of practical ways we can think about what it means for reconciliation. Three phrases for reconciliation. Now remember at the beginning, I said I'm going to make a couple foundational points and we're going to get practical. Let me get practical with this here. Here's the first phrase that's needed for reconciliation. You have to be able to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. If you're not taking notes, you should write that down. If you're already taking notes, good job. I see you, I see you writing that down. Now, in this passage, there's no explicit statement where they say, I was wrong, but it's clearly the overarching tone and the theme. If we don't ever receive grace, then we're never able to say I was wrong because we're bound to looking impressive. If I have to look impressive, one of two things will happen. I'll never say I was wrong because then I don't look impressive anymore. Or I'll say I was wrong and it's absolutely crushing to me because I still idolize looking impressive and I no longer look impressive. Right? And so as long as I'm saying my identity is how I look good instead of how Jesus' grace has come to me, this statement will be incredibly problematic. I wonder if some of you are, are here and you're hearing me say that and you're thinking, Justin, I get it, but in my church experience up to this point, I've never seen this and I have deep wounds. Because all I've seen in church is people that self-justify and they never apologize. Friend, I'm sorry. That is not the way of grace. And I I hope that while you're here at Parkside, you'll find a church that is by no means perfect, but I hope you'll find one that's quick to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I hope that you'll see 
that what God calls us to because of his grace is actually possible. One of the really common questions I get in in this kind of conversation from people as, as a pastor is this. They say, Pastor, how do I know if I was wrong in this situation? Maybe you've wondered that. Now, sometimes it's blatantly obvious, right? In, in Jacob's case, this is the, it, it's clear. He stole, he's been deceitful, he lied to his dad. Like, this is obviously, apology is needed. Uh, and so for a lot of cases, there's clear moral wrongdoing, and you need to own your sin and apologize for it. But many times, it's not as clear, right? So imagine this situation. Imagine I come home from a stressful day, and I'm really hoping that Emily will be ready to listen to me and empathize and say, oh, man, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. That must have been really difficult today. But she similarly has had a really, really stressful day, very difficult day. And so I say, well, dear, you seem very concerned with your own wife. Philippians 2, 3 does say to count others as more significant as yourself. I'll start praying that you can grow in that area. Now, who needs to apologize there? Am I wrong? Is she wrong? Are we both wrong? Is neither of us wrong? Is, hey, we were just tired and stressed out, no biggie, let it... Now, it's a silly example, right? But maybe you can imagine a time where somebody was offended by something you did, and you're saying, well, maybe you were wrongly offended by me doing nothing wrong. Or maybe somebody says, well, you should have done more in that situation, and you're thinking... If I had 30 hours this week free, I could have done more, but I don't exactly know what I was supposed to do with the time and resources I had available. So it's not clear is what I'm getting at. Um, and I think in these situations, there's, there's a couple of things we've got to avoid against. Is false guilt a real problem? You bet it is. Do we need to be careful that we're not manipulating people? You bet we do. You could always do more in almost any situation. And that's just a almost by definition true kind of statement. So how do we proceed here? And what I want to encourage you to do is think through a couple of commands in the New Testament that you can self-reflectively pray back to God. So you think of Romans 12, 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, have I done everything I can to show honor to this person in this situation? Or maybe you keep going through Romans chapter 12, you come to verse 18. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Lord, have I done everything I can, as far as it depends on me, to live peaceably with this person? Or Ephesians 4, 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, have I been eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Or you flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, and you read, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't arrogant, it isn't rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. You say, Lord, love is patient, love is kind. Am I being patient in this situation? Am I being kind? Am I envying what somebody else has? Am I actually boasting in what I have? Am I being arrogant or rude to this person? Am I irritable? And I think if we would slow down, and I probably took maybe 60 seconds there, 90 seconds just to walk through each of those, I think if we would do that, 
the Lord would graciously speak to us and give us clarity on how to proceed instead of playing the endless hypothetical of could have done, should have been, this, that, and the other that we just talked about and kind of laughed about together, right? All this is another way of saying the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is everything that we need for life and godliness. We go back to the word over and over. Now, let me caution you on this. Some of these ones where it's unclear, do I need to say I was wrong? These are not easily imposed on others. Right? These are self-reflective prayers, not others' reflective prayers. But in prayerful reflection, I can simply say, Lord, did I follow your word, or am I making excuses for myself? And oftentimes, in a humble statement of I was wrong, what you'll find is that reconciliation is a two-way street, and choosing humility opens up the door for somebody else to also apologize. That's the first statement. Second statement for reconciliation is this. I'd like to talk. Yes, I was wrong, but secondly, I would like to talk. In other words, I not only admit I was wrong, but I approach the conversation with humility in a way that opens the door to reconciliation. If Genesis 33 is still open, I invite you to look back at verse 3. Here's what we read. He himself, this being Jacob, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. What does Jacob do? He goes in humility, makes himself vulnerable, and he shows this humility by bowing. Now, the, the cultural custom would have been to bow once. He doesn't bow once. He bows seven times. And so Jacob, in his actions, is saying this. Esau, I'd like to talk. No, it's been a rough past. I'd like to talk. And so I wonder if in your life you think about what this could look like. Maybe you can imagine a small child comes stomping and storming into the room with face beat red and the veins are popping out. Easy example, not approaching the conversation with humility, not opening the door to repentance. They just need to hear you yell. But positively, last week, I had a friend come to me, and here's, here's what this friend, they said, friend said, he said, I don't know if I'm wrong, and I don't know if I need to apologize, but I'd like to revisit a conversation, and could we talk about this together? That's what it means to say, I'd like to talk. I'm not sure what happened here. I think maybe I need to apologize, but I don't entirely know. Could we please talk about this? That approach models humility and opens the door to reconciliation. And what we see in Genesis 33 is this interesting irony. Jacob's gentle, humble approach to reconciliation actually ends up being mirrored by Esau. His soft answer, in a sense, turns away wrath. Right? We already saw how Esau has that five-fold response in verse 4. He ran, embraced him, fell, kissed him, and they wept. But look down at verse 15. You see another interesting irony here where the humble approach actually brings reconciliation. Look at verse 15. Here's what it says. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Now that may not strike you as Significant on the surface, but there's 400 bad boys with Esau, and they look like they're coming to attack Jacob. And what does Esau say? I actually brought extra guys so I could leave some with you for your protection. <laughs> totally not what he thought was going to happen, right? And the hard part about this is, like, you can read Genesis 33 and say, well, they both kind of came at it with humility and it worked out in a sense. 
But it's risky, isn't it? Because you don't have that guarantee in the conversation you need to have this afternoon. Like, what if I go with humility and make myself vulnerable, and they take that, and as an opportunity, when I show them the soft spot in my back, that's where exactly where the dagger goes. <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? This is where it comes back to understanding grace or not understanding grace. If I understand grace, it allows me to say, I'd like to talk because I don't have to have your acceptance. If my whole identity is based on having your acceptance, then I can't say I'd like to talk because you're going to do one of two things. On the one hand, if I have to have your acceptance, you may be more prone towards people-pleasing. And so what you're going to do is you're not going to have tough conversations. You're not going to enter into that space because it's scary and they might not like what I say. So I'm just going to shove it under the rug, pretend like it's all okay, and we're going to call that keeping the peace when it's really just cowardice. Or on the other hand, if I have to have your acceptance, I come in like a bull in a china shop and I strong arm it and I demand it be this way because I could never admit that I was actually wrong. Grace allows me to say, yes, I was wrong. And I can humbly enter this because I already know I've been reconciled to God. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, God has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. And this becomes the dominant theme, a dominant tilt of the whole Bible. The belief in the gospel must produce a culture shaped by the gospel. That vertical reconciliation must produce horizontal reconciliation. That receiving grace must produce people who gladly give grace. This is what the Bible is telling us. I remember at one point I was in counselor training, and uh, there was a method that they, they taught us called the OIC method. If you remember three letters, OIC, observe, interpret, confront. And so I'd encourage you, when you're thinking, how do I say I'd like to talk, think of the OIC method. Say, here's what I observed. So this, that and the other thing happened. Here's how I interpreted it. Looked like this. And here's how I'll confront myself. Now, the counselor training was get you to try and confront someone else, but it works just as well to apply it to yourself. I observed this happened. I interpreted it this way. And here's how we could do this differently. Oh, I see. Really simple. And when you do that, I'm going to encourage you, work hard to not be self-justifying. This is really hard if you've had to do this. Or if you haven't, it's, it's still just as hard. You just don't know that experientially in the same way. And one way to know that you're not self-justifying is that you're willing to name your sin specifically. Don't be vague or ambiguous. So you say, hey, I'm really struggling with time management. What well, might be more appropriate to say, actually, I've been lazy and I should have gotten these things done. Or you could say, I was actually I commit, I've been very proud and arrogant because I acted like I had 30 hours a day available. I've got this Messiah complex, and I think I can do everything. No wonder I'm not getting things done, and it feels like time management. I need to confess I have limits, and I can't do everything. Right? There's a difference between how you say that. Or, or you might say, well, I'm struggling with pure thoughts right now. Maybe that's the case, but it would oftentimes be more appropriate to say, I was actively choosing to lust in this situation. I actually didn't fight against sin. I wasn't struggling. I was actively choosing to watch pornography here. Name your sin, and that's a way that you know, 
I'm not being self-justifying. We might say, well, I felt really stressed, and so I did this. It would be better to say, well, I put myself ahead of you, and I was actively choosing myself instead of your needs and your interests. And that's hard to say. Don't, 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 you imagine that conversation in your head right now with the person you need to talk to. Very difficult to say that. I get that. But that's one way to know that we're not being self-justifying. So step two is I not only admit I was wrong, but I approach the conversation with humility in a way that leads to reconciliation. Third, final statement. You say, not only I was wrong, not only I'd like to talk, I'd like to make things right. I'd like to make things right. Esau is surprised when Jacob shows up with all these women and children. Because the last time that Jacob was there, he was single, he was alone, there weren't all these people. And so, so Esau says to him, like, what's up? Who are all these people? And Jacob looks around, he sees what's happening, and in verse 5 he says, these are the children whom God has graciously given, your servant. And it's an interesting way of seeing that Jacob is the guy who's received grace, because he doesn't say, these are the wives I worked 14 years for. Like, would that be accurate to say, I worked hard for these two wives, Leah and Rachel? Absolutely. But he reinterprets his life story through grace. He says, these are the women and the children that God graciously gave me. And I wonder if that's how we operate. Do we reinterpret our life story through grace, not just saying, here's the things that I worked for? So in verse 10, we see Jacob saying, I'd like to make things right because God has blessed me so much. Pick it up in verse 10, look down there. Here's what it says. Jacob said, no, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Essence, Jacob says, I've graciously received from God, I have enough. I used to steal from you, and now I'm going to give to you. Now, the outer action isn't what earns the reconciliation. It shows I'm serious about reconciliation. It's not like he's going to have to buy Esau's favor. Or he says, no, I'm serious about pursuing a restored relationship here. I remember I was at a church camp one time, and the way this was set up, our cabin had a counselor and a pastor. That's what every cabin had. And the pastor had to be there about 24 hours late. And so he came to the, the cabin 24 hours late. We'd already been doing stuff. And he brought a whole bucket of Gatorades with him. And said, guys, sorry, here's my peace offering. Sorry I had to be a little late, but I'm bringing a gift here to say I come in peace and I'm looking forward to being with you guys. Now, it feels a little silly, but when you're 15, an orange Gatorade is like top of the food chain. That's amazing stuff to get. And it says, hey, this guy is serious about being here with us. He didn't, for $1.50, buy our friendship. He just said, I'm serious about being here with you. So what does that look like in a more adult and less church camp kind of situation, right? At, at, at a high level, to say, I'd like to make things right, requires you to embrace two words. Here's the two words you need to embrace. Patient persistence. Patient persistence. And the more you've been wrong, the more patience and the more persistence is going to be needed. Say, so Justin, it doesn't feel like there's any traction here. Keep being persistent. 
feels like it's not going anywhere. Be patient. And so practically, to make things right means this. If you've sinned with your words, it's maybe been a pattern over a while, and it's hard to figure out, how do I show someone I'm really serious here? Commit to asking five questions before you make a single statement. So I'm so used to speaking right away. Like, no, no, no. Ask five questions. And in so doing, you demonstrate, I really would like to make things right. If you've struggled with sexual sin, you say, I'm going to go above and beyond to seek accountability and open confession. And maybe that's some kind of an accountability app I put on my devices. Maybe it's, it's getting together with other brothers or sisters where I can confess these things on a regular basis. But I say, I'm going to go above and beyond here. Maybe it means actually giving something up. Maybe it means giving up a hobby or a device. But it might not. One of the things I found is I can ask somebody, and it's, it's often my wife, hey, do we need to just like stop watching March Madness here? And she says, no, no, I know you like the basketball games. It's fine. Keep watching them. But if you would prioritize these two things I care about, you would be showing me that you actually love me in this way. And of course, knucklehead self, I'm like, wait a second. So like, you're asking me for 25 minutes of helping with these things, and then I can go watch the game for two hours, and that's still okay? She's like, yeah, it's just when you neglect the obvious stuff that I start to feel really not loved. So it doesn't mean you have to like totally dump everything. No more fishing, no more hunting, no more fantasy basketball or whatever. Like, just ask. And, and if you're a younger guy or a younger woman in the room, I should tell you, one of the great privileges of my life has been able to go and ask older men, hey, I'm trying to get this figured out, and I feel like I'm just spinning my tires and making deeper ruts. I really want to get this thing figured out. Can you help me to see a better way forward? And then they point something out, and I'm sitting there like, how in the world did I not think of that? So don't be above going and asking somebody, say, I need help. I need your wisdom. Can you counsel me and... What are some good actions to say, I'd really like to make this thing right? I was wrong. I'd like to talk. I'd like to make it right. Friend, I'm confident that if you'll lean into all three of those statements, you will see reconciled relationships with those in your life. And if we zoom out just a little bit here, zoom out just a little to, to the overarching story, there's a kid in this passage that we haven't talked about. His name is Joseph. And I think God is showing Joseph something remarkable in this passage. He's showing him what reconciliation between his father and his uncle can look like. And just a few decades later, if you track in Joseph's life, he's going to be faced with this difficult task of reconciling with his family sold into slavery of a foreign power. I mean, just for an, a, a, sort of an example here, this would be like, your brother or your sister selling you to the Taliban for $5,000 so that you can buy tickets to the Final Four. Like, that really happened. And it, so you imagine Joseph going off to Egypt, sitting in the prisons, working his job, asking himself, is reconciliation possible? Could I ever forgive? Did I do something wrong that I need to apologize for? Did I deserve this? It feels impossible to him, right? 
How could I ever forgive them for that? And yet deep in his moral imagination, he's remembering back, I saw this happen one time. My dad modeled this. I saw this with my uncle. It's powerful. So parents and grandparents, when you think about reconciliation, understand there's a battle inside your own soul, but there's also a battle for your kids and for your grandkids that you can model for them what godliness looks like here. And there are some of you who say, Justin, that's great that Joseph saw that. I'm glad he did, but I've never seen that. That's not how my dad, that's not how my mom did it. Here's the good news, guys. For all of us, whether you've seen it in your family or not, we all have Jesus to look to who did model it. Think about it. In a sense, he came down in weakness, in humility, as a baby. Hey, guys, I didn't do anything wrong, so I don't have anything I can apologize for. I'm God in flesh. But I come in weakness to say, I'd like to talk. Come and understand where you're at, to know your weakness, your temptation, your difficulty. And I know it wasn't my fault, but I'm still going to take responsibility to make things right. Isn't that what he did? His, my sin wasn't his fault, but my sin put him on the cross, and he said, I'm going to go, I'm going to make it right. So whether you can look to your mom or your dad who did it right or not, we can all look to Jesus who went there. And so when it feels impossible, like the hurdles are too high and the road is too long, I cannot be reconciled to this person. You look in him, in him, you see a model and a picture and a motivation and a transformation to pursue reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave each of us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. Jesus, we are struck by the steps you would take to come and reconcile us to yourself. You who knew no sin would become sin for us so that in Christ we could become the righteousness of God. So Lord, we ask for your grace here as we're in a, a moment of reflection we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us humility to say, I was wrong. Our identity would not be in looking impressive or the good things that we can do. But that our identity would be in your grace. Undeserved grace. That we would be humble before you, reconciled before our fellow man. And as this feels impossible, we would ask you to give us eyes to see the cross. See Jesus there, his body broken, his blood being spilt out to bring us back to you, to show us that it is possible even when it feels impossible. We pray these things in Jesus' name.